it's Melissa and Heidi and we're so glad you're joining us again today for the Behind the Defense podcast. Thank you to our return listeners. As always, a warm welcome to our first-time listeners. We're happy that you're here to enjoy research discussions with us. Today, we're joined by Dr. Chris Jacobson, who recently completed his doctoral research entitled College Stopout Among Rural Undergraduates of Phenomenology. Chris earned his PhD at Boston College, where he graduated in May of this year, and we're excited to engage him in, a, in the conversation about his research today. Thank you so much for being with us today, Dr. Jacobson. Could you start by introducing yourself to our listeners? Sure. Thanks for having me. My name is Chris Jacobson. I just completed a PhD at Boston College Lynch School of Education and Human Development. Uh, the program there that I did was the Higher Education Program. And the title of my dissertation is College Stopout Among Rural Undergraduates of Phenomenology. I've worked in higher education for over 10 years in a variety of roles at an array of institutions, mostly private institutions. And my professional work has mostly been in fundraising. And currently I am the head of development at the Tuck School of Business at Dartmouth College. So having come from career focused in fundraising, how did you choose the topic of your dissertation? That's a great question. So for a good portion of my life, but especially almost all of my adult life, I've lived in rural places. And as a professional, I've worked at colleges and universities that are set in rural places. And after working at the institutions set in rural communities and living in the rural communities themselves, I started to notice a real discrepancy in education, in college access, and in college outcomes. I was always and am always involved usually in the schools uh, near where I live. My wife is an elementary school teacher, and it's pretty striking uh, not only the separation between the rural communities where I've lived and the institutions themselves, uh, all of them have been elite institutions, selective institutions, but also the disparities in the uh, families and children who are affiliated with the university in those communities and those who aren't. And just began to see very clearly that there was a real disparity in access and completion and almost all aspects of college going. That's really interesting. So before we kind of get into talking about the structure of your dissertation, the kind of nuts and bolts of your research. For our listeners, can you share a little bit about the special considerations or characteristics of rural undergraduates? That's a really good question. And I'm going to object to the premise of the question for, for this reason. I think in the research literature, rural students as a population are viewed as monolithic. I think often scholars and all of us, many of us, whether we live in a rural community or have never set foot in a rural community, have this image of white, conservative, uh, evangelical dairy farmers when we think of rural families and rural kids. Uh, that's not at all reality. That certainly is a portion, that profile is a portion 
of rural undergraduates, but the students that come from rural places are are remarkably diverse across a number of dimensions. Roughly one in four uh, rural kids are students of color, high school students. Of course, there's great variation in uh, social class. So when you ask what are some characteristics of rural undergraduates? It's a tough question to answer. And that's part of the reason why I wrote the dissertation as I did. However, I can tell you there are some clear trends among rural undergraduates. By and large, they attend public, non-selective institutions that are 50 miles from where they grew up. We know that over half of all undergraduates, no matter where they live, attend college 50 miles from their hometown. And one of the reasons most rural undergraduates attend public non-selective institutions is because that's the only college or university within 50 miles of where they live. Thank you. It's perfectly fine to object to any question. <laughs> <laughs> I tried to limit the snark. <laughs> no, we, we appreciate snark here. So you're good. <laughs> I, I got that sense. So you chose to do a transcendental phenomenology. Tell our listeners what that entails. Yes, so I chose to do a qualitative study that draws from the um, transcendental phenomenological philosophy, which really emerged over a century ago by Edmund Husserl. And so what that entails is trying to understand how a particular phenomenon is experienced. So a phenomenon can be anything. It can be the phenomenon of being a twin, of having a heart attack, of feeling lonely. And so when I set out on my project, I knew that there was some distinct qualities to stopping out of college, withdrawing from college without a degree, and being rural. And because I decided to do a qualitative study, I was less interested in the reasons for why they dropped out, but more how they experienced that phenomenon. I wanted to know what it was like to go through that and to try to identify what the similarities are. I'll just say up front, there is very little consensus among scholars about how to conduct a phenomenological study. There are several colleagues of mine in my department who this year defended brilliant dissertations using phenomenology, and it looks nothing like my study. But I was fairly rigorous in using the theoretical approach of Edmund Husserl and the uh, methodological approach specifically for the social sciences that was documented by Clark Moustakis. So sort of the pairing of those two scholars, one a, a philosopher, one a social scientist. And I want to applaud you for your German pronunciation of Husserl, because um, there's a variety of different ways you could have gone about that last name, and uh, you chose the correct way. So congratulations. Coming from the German in in this podcast. I'm so glad. (laughs) You shared just now, and I want to pick up on this, that there were some other um, frameworks that you utilized in your sort of to frame this study or and, and to guide your analysis, um, particularly talking about your chapter on theoretical frameworks, uh, which I thought was neat to sort of break it out into its own chapter or, you know, little section. 
you use Bronfenbrenner, uh, Yasso, and Husaro, but the first two to sort of set the conceptual nature of the study. Why did you choose these three in particular, and how do they situate your study and your analysis? When I set out on this dissertation, I knew that I wanted to write something that was both intellectually rigorous and accessible to practitioners. When I discovered the work of Husserl, it lit a spark and I knew that this was going to be the dominant theory that would ground this study. But a lot of other research on rural undergraduates uses Yuri Bronfenbrenner's ecological systems theory and Tara Yoso's community cultural wealth model to frame the unique outlook, needs, and aspirations of rural students. And so I wanted to blend these three theories together so that the study would still have rigor, but I could also later in the study talk about it in a way that whether you're familiar with Yoso or Bronfenbrenner or not, you're familiar with it, it could make sense. I wanted to use their frameworks as a common language. And I think in the last chapter, I try to draw connections between those theories and some of the findings. I also, without getting too geeky, wanted to present sort of the conventional positivist viewpoint of things having meaning and logic and things being rational alongside Husserl's much more things are what they are, regardless of their connection to to meaning and other theories and other presuppositions. So that was my intent. You guys can tell me if it worked or not. <laughs> I, I, I wanted to kind of ask you a question about that, that you just touched on. What was that experience like taking a positive view, but using a really destructive theory that doesn't jive with that? It's a great question. And my, committee really pushed me on this. And I held firm. (laughs) These theories, I think you can see, are in conversation with one another rather than conflict with one another. Do they present different viewpoints? Are there aspects of each theory which are incongruent with aspects of another theory? Sure. But I think my attempt was to convey a well-rounded view of the experience of withdrawing from college when you're from a rural community. And I don't think I'd be able to do that just with transcendental phenomenology. I just think it was too abstract on its own. And Yoso and Bronfenbrenner, I think, brought it all down to earth without compromising the integrity of the method. That's a nice way to summarize how those frameworks work together. Speaking of this particular method, phenomenology, we always ask our our participants on this podcast what challenges and successes they've had with their particular chosen method. So I'm curious how that played out for you. So there's very little room for shortcuts with this methodological approach. If you're going to do this right, if you're going to do a phenomenology, you have to really spend a lot of time and a lot of effort with the material. 
you can't just do it in interview over Zoom or in person or over the phone. Put it through a transcriber, polish it up, and then try to extract some themes. You have to go back to it over and over and over again. One of the hardest exercises for me with this method is writing the composite textual description. And just very briefly, what that is, is you go through your interviews, you transcribe all your interviews, you write sort of long form narratives, not transcriptions, but narratives of the interview, drawing sort of the meaning out as best you can. And then at the end, you take all of those individual descriptions and you try to condense them into one that summarizes the collective true meaning and essence of the phenomenon. My composite description ended up being maybe four pages. It's the hardest four pages I've ever written in my life. It probably took me an entire month worth of work because you write it and then you go back to all the individual descriptions and find that part of what you've written in the composite description doesn't hold true against all of the individual descriptions. So you just have to go back over and over and over again until you really feel like it's right. And that was a challenge <laughs> that took discipline and honesty. Successes with your method? I think the real richness of this dissertation is in those individual descriptions. I think as you read them, they are poignant, they're revealing, they're extremely detailed, clear patterns emerge across each of them. And they're heartbreaking. Most of them are heartbreaking. Some have happy endings, but there are still aspects that are really hard. And I don't think I would have gotten that quality of detail without this method. Um, and that's not to disparage any other form of qualitative research, but phenomenology goes deep. And I think several months later, as I go back and reread them, I think the texture and the richness is really evident in those individual descriptions. Yeah, I would, I would definitely agree with that. I, I literally felt the wind blowing down the plane <laughs> in, in, in one of them. One of the things that sort of stood out to me is, you know, we, quantitative researchers often talk about their participants as subjects, you know, and then when you take your first qualitative class, you learn that they're not subjects, they're participants. And then I read Chris's dissertation, and he calls them co-researchers. So talk to us about why you refer to them in that manner and, and what that meant to you. It's a great question. Clark Moustakas, in his book, Phenomenological Research Methods, urges anyone who conducts a social science phenomenology to refer to your study participants as co-researchers. And so I decided to do that because I wanted to honor the role that the co-researchers were playing in uncovering their own story. The interviews, the voice memo follow-up, sure, it was for my dissertation and for my research, but it was also part of their own reflective journey and process of understanding their story. It took some getting used to, to write co-researchers over and over and over again, but I think it was important. And one of the ways that I was able to stay disciplined about adhering to the methodology was using language like that, like co-researchers. I found it instructive for my own practice, I think, to, to look at 
look at participants in that way. I was curious too, you did much of your data collection online or all of it online. Talk to us about the the uniqueness of this year um, or of this past year and the pandemic impact on, on your work. Um, and for this particular dissertation, did you did you find it tough to navigate, or did did you sort of, in retrospect, say, "Oh, this was it was just fine"? <laughs> it was awful. It was so so awful, Heidi. Oh my gosh! If I have one piece of advice for PhD students who are about to write their dissertation, it's if you see a pan a global pandemic coming, run in the other direction. Take a three year sabbatical. You know, I. I'm just now looking back with a clear eye on what the data collection process was like during the pandemic. I will say I was extremely lucky in that I still had access to the population of students that I wanted to talk to. A really close colleague at Boston College studies prison level higher education. There's no way probably still that he is able to get into a a prison to talk, to collect a sample. So I felt really lucky there. And I'm very grateful for that, all joking aside. The practical difficulty I ran into is I sourced my sample through Upward Bound staff. And I began my data collection in February, 2020 and continued it through June, 2020. And that is a period of time where campuses were locked down. The priorities of student affairs staff was not helping a fourth year doctoral student from an institution in Boston getting to reach a very hard, historically hard to reach student population. Because remember, I wasn't asking them to put me in touch with their high achievers, the people who knocked it out of the park and went to college and stayed in touch. I was asking them to put me in touch with the students who may have at some point been high achievers, but who didn't complete college. And so that was tricky. But Ultimately, by the end of it, I was able to build a sample with the help of the Upward Bound Network, even during that really difficult time. And a relatively large sample, too. Yeah, so, so Moustakis urges between 8 and 15 co-researchers, and I think my final sample was about 13. What was more important to me than the number is that there was broad geographic representation across the U.S., and so ultimately I was able to get students from 12 different states in all different regions of the U.S. with pretty good representation across race and gender. Oh, I will say this about the whole pandemic situation. I think when we look back on it, no matter where you are in your doctoral journey or where you are in your life journey, I think we've all achieved things in an environment, in a situation, in a context that we never thought we would. And we all deserve to be applauded for that. Yes, absolutely. So I want to dig a little deeper on your process of analysis, because this is a, this is always the thing that I feel like you can't learn from a book. Like, how do you approach your data? And I was asked this question in my dissertation defense as to, you know, how did I actually do it? Because I guess I wasn't explicit enough in my write-up. And I, my response was, well, I just sat with the data, which, you know, to what degree that's helpful, I don't know. But what, what did it end up looking like for you? Like it, you said it took you a month to write four pages, but what were you doing in those four months to produce these four pages? Yeah, so I was really lucky 
that the framework that I was using gave a pretty clear roadmap. And so I developed kind of a set of practices of some methodological like coding. I did first cycle and second cycle coding. It was really helpful. I walked into the coding process with a set of provisional codes, but then I also did in vivo, in vivo coding. So as students said things that were interesting or quotable, I was able to flag it. And then I did things that were a little more meditative around when and how I would engage with the materials. So that was one advantage of doing this all during lockdown as I was stuck at home, you know, in my office or my basement, um, really able to reread the transcription. I'd say one thing that really helped me is I transcribed everything by hand. And my one of my committee members said, well, what do you mean by hand? Like, with a quill. And I was like, yes, I, I transcribed 13 interviews with a quill. Um, no, I mean, with, you know, I, I've rewatched the interviews. They were all recorded because they were conducted by zoom and I'd pause every 15 seconds and I'd write down every single word as best as I could do the discourse analysis um, for all 13 studies. And that took a long time, maybe a day per interview. But Heidi, when you say sitting with the data, that was sort of my way of sitting with the data. That was my way of practicing epoch of just trying to wipe away everything else. So yeah, those were just some practices that I developed. But again, if you follow the structure and keep the values of phenomenology, do it right, you're sort of on, on course to have a pretty thoughtful data analysis process. I don't think you can oversell the value of hand transcribing mm-hmm. your interviews for my one research class, we did interviews and I hand transcribed one and then did the Zoom transcription and cleaned it up. The The rich understanding of your data you get by hand transcribing, I think is just really amazing. And I think you doing it with a quill would be very New England. So <laughs> Exactly. By candlelight. <laughs> with, a, with a powdered wig on. <laughs> yes. Man, I got it. Really an opportunity. So let's talk about your findings. What stood out to you? Yeah. So after writing all the individual descriptions, after writing the composite descriptions, I was able to distill all the findings into four units of meaning, which is the fancy phenomenological way of saying themes. And those four themes that I found were what I think was the essence of the experience for these rural undergraduates. These were the kind of the four meaningful themes that every student experienced in some way in their stop out experience. No matter whether they were happy or sad to leave college, whether they have found a productive life without a degree or they're struggling, these four things were kind of the, the keystone, the pillars of the experience of stop out. The first was rural cultural identity. Every single student spoke in different ways about the same set of influences, of characteristics that really influenced their journey to and through and ultimately out of college. Things like the realities of going to a small rural high school. Many of these students, they got to campus and they found themselves in a long, large lecture hall with 300 students. And they looked around and said, gosh, I've never been in a group of 300 people before, let alone one that's 
filled with people all my age in a single course. I think there were some real sort of cultural family value influences that all these students had in very different ways. So that was the first theme, rural cultural identity. The second was family influence and interaction. There was wide variance around the nature of family relationships. Some were really close with their family. Some had really toxic family relationships. But the role of family played such an outsized role, was such an outsized influence in the stopout experience. And I have to think that part of that is connected to growing up in a rural community. The third was feelings of distress. Every student described just profound mental, emotional, and physical distress connected to the stopout experience. That was universal among the sample. And then finally, every student went through this process. I called it reconstructing self and future of reorienting themselves towards a future without college, which in all cases, these students had never imagined. Now, I just want to say these themes are ones that could be applied to those who depart college from any rural geography. These are not necessarily, with the exception of rural cultural identity, unique to rural students. But again, the point of the dissertation was not to make rural-non-rural comparisons. It was to understand on its face the experience of stopping out of college when you're from a rural community. So those were kind of the high-level findings. There was a lot of implications. And I think those are more practical and those are more related to the distinct ruralness of the study sample. Can I pause just one second? Go for it. And you can include this in the recording. One of the benefits of living in a rural place is your neighbors show up at all times. (laughs) And I just see my next door neighbors have just approached on on the front lawn here. I think they're wanting a cocktail. So I'm just going to tell my wife that I'll be out with a cocktail in short order and to hang around until then. (laughs) I'll see you right back. Do you have a cocktail for us? Like, I feel left out here. I know well, I can shake it, but then, you know, you won't be able to I'll have an old fashioned while you're <laughs> at it. I think that's what's on tap. Just give me one quick second. Go sure. for it. So my wife and I have lived at our current house in Vermont for about five years. About six months after we moved in, there was a massive thunderstorm. And the brook that runs along our dirt road, which is about three miles, uh, rose so much that it washed out not just the road, but also the bridges along the way and many of the bridges and culverts at the bottom of our driveways. So we and all of our neighbors were stranded. And that was a time where we got to know each other very well. And, you know, my neighbors on our dirt road, there's maybe 10 families, all different backgrounds, different education levels, uh, different SES, different ideologies. Uh, different political persuasions for sure, but we're all really close and spend a lot of time with one another, even after they put the road back in. Mm-hmm. That's nice that's, to hear. Yeah, that's really wonderful. So, I feel like that's the news from Lake Wobegon. <laughs> <laughs> well, I hope they enjoy the cocktail you inevitably bring them. Yes, of course. So I did want to kind of revisit the individual textural descriptions that you have because they're beautiful. Like from the description, the historic context of the area the student is growing up in to their story to the like where they're at currently they're beautiful they're like Heidi had said they're heartbroken I wanted to just create a massive GoFundMe to pay off these students debts at these institutions so they could finish but what I really want to hear from you is well 
you talked about the four pages that was kind of the culmination of those and the composite. But what was it like writing these snapshots of these stories? It was challenging writing the individual descriptions, but it was also very rewarding and on some level fun. I always spend a lot of time trying to learn about the rural community, the historical, political, cultural background of their community, because I knew after doing the interviews that they played an outsized, the community played an outsized role in who these individuals were. It was incredible. And I was surprised by how easily accessible the students and the co-researchers could draw on their experience. I did very little talking uh, and they were very willing and eager to sort of open up to me and run with the questions I was asking and reflect on their own time and in their own way on the experience that they had. To hear that context, that is extremely impressive because the depth of experience that these students are talking about, they're talking about very personal experiences, whether that is struggles with mental health, even um, I think it's Sophie who talks about her family's trailer being raided because a family member is using meth. There are no barriers to these conversations you're having. How did you, I guess this might be more of a methodological question, but like, how did you create that level of security, that level of trust with them, or did it just come naturally? So to be honest with you, as these interviews unfolded, I was so taken aback and appreciative of how vulnerable and intimate these students were willing to be with me that honestly, I was kind of stunned. And so just found myself, and I noticed this when I was rewatching the recordings over and over again, just sort of being very quiet and just listening. And uh, so I'd like to say it's because I'm such a talented and experienced qualitative interviewer. That's not the case. I just was all ears and was just so profoundly grateful that these students were were sharing their stories with me um, that I just sat there and listened. And when there was a pause, I asked a question and the students started talking again. Uh, It didn't take very long for any of the students to warm up, some more than others, but there seemed to be a general comfort level with them willing to share this. And I think that speaks to how central this experience is for them and their identity and how much they had already thought about the meaning of that on their own life and identity and future. Well, we've been gifted with their stories. So you mentioned their identity and a lot of these stories that they're sharing revolve around the post stop out experience and how they've kind of moved forward and how they reflect upon that time Did you share your dissertation with your co-researchers when it was done? Did you give them an opportunity to read your findings? I haven't done that. And I've thought a lot about it. And to be honest with you guys, I'm not sure I've arrived at a decision about whether or not I will. I I never promised that I'd share it with them. Um, I never said that. And none of them actually asked. I wanted to make sure that these co-researchers got something out of the study, apart from the financial incentive. Every student got a $100 Amazon gift card for participating. Um, So I offered to be a follow-up and resource to them in any way that I could, helping them with their educational and career journey and outlook. 
I had two students correspond with me via email after, but uh, but that that's been it. And so I haven't shared this with them yet. Yeah, no, that's a that's a really good question. That's something I need to keep thinking about. It's still very fresh for me, but I need to think about how and when to share that and what the outcomes might be of doing that for for themselves, for the students, the co-researchers. If you were to read the individual descriptions next to the transcriptions and then watch the interviews themselves, I think you'd see a lot of consistency across those three data sources. In fact, I think they'd be very consistent. My hesitation is when you just read the individual description, some of them are quite depressing. And I would never want these students to read a accurate portrait of our conversation and of themselves and feel sad or hopeless about their future. Because I think every one of them has a chance to find a meaningful, fulfilling life within or outside of the rural community and with or without a college degree. I think when I was reading the narratives, the first one you read, she moves to Seattle, has this marriage, you know, admits she's not making good choices, has a second marriage, they move back to the small town. And you're like, it's kind of a gut check because I don't know what you're anticipating reading your dissertation, but it starts off like you're not pulling any punches. And then as you start to read, you start to see these similarities and you feel like there's solidarity in their experiences. And just the the overwhelming feeling of regret that these students speak about or the, how they speak about almost an out-of-body experience reflecting on their time at college. Like it happened to another person. It happened in another time. It's very abstract. I think that there might be an element where they're like, okay, this is not just me failing. This is, yeah. this is something that has happened. This is something that happens to a lot of individuals. It has nothing to do with me and who I am and my abilities. I am part of a greater process, like a greater phenomenon. And yes. I think that there could be comfort to that. But then the flip side is like you had said, like you read that narrative and you, some students, some individuals who have participated are at different varying levels of success in their life. And for someone who maybe has not been able to move past the initial, their stop out date is more recent. They're still struggling to find their footing to see someone who maybe is more successful. They may, it may reinforce like, okay, well, I just am generally like not. And do we know that our co-researchers will read the rest of the chapter or will they seek out their own story in isolation? So I think that there are some considerations there for sure. Yeah, I think that's a good point. And and so this conversation is illustrating kind of the tension I have and why I haven't made a choice yet. So we'll see. Time will tell. I think that, you know, the conversation we just had really speaks to how research lives past the defense in many ways. Absolutely. Talk to me about the practical applications that you see your research taking. What are the implications of this study? I see a lot of practical implications from this study. And for the purpose of this conversation, I'll distill them just down to five. The first is that this phenomenology starts a fresh conversation in the research literature, which is accessed by scholars and practitioners alike about rural undergraduates, particularly those who don't make it through college. There is a growing body of research on high achieving rural undergraduates. There's some very good qualitative studies on localized populations of rural undergraduates, but there's not kind of a broad scale 
study that spans the entire United States that looks at rural undergraduates and that looks at college stopout. And as an aside, I think this dissertation also makes a contribution to the general body of literature on college stopout because there's not a whole lot written there either. The second implication I think is useful for higher ed institutions. I think it's useful for K-12 educators, for guidance counselors, and that is that there's limited educational and career visibility in rural hometowns. And because it's so limited, that shapes the college outlook of the students living there. Students in rural towns, they don't have a broad view of adults that have successful lives without college degrees. There's just not a lot of variance in the types of professions. Either you have a college degree and you have kind of a traditional path, you're a doctor or a lawyer or a teacher or some other type of profession in the community, or you don't have a college degree and you have some sort of non-traditional path, or you don't have a college degree and your life is really hard. And all these students talk about how their parents didn't have college degrees and how aspects of that made their lives really hard economically, but also culturally in different ways. So that's the second implication. The third, financial illiteracy is a top college completion barrier with distinct implications for rural undergraduates. Holy smokes, every single student in this sample talked about how they didn't have a clear idea about how much college would cost, how much they would owe, or what the financial return would be on their degree had they graduated. That was pretty stunning and I think unique to rural undergraduates. Number four, despite many differences in rural regions, there are some similar systemic college completion barriers that face all rural undergraduates. I talked to co-researchers who lived in predominantly African-American small towns in the South. I talked to a co-researcher who lives in a small, white, steepled community here in Vermont, uh, all over the country. But as you saw from reading the descriptions, there are patterns and there are similar systemic challenges facing all rural students. I think those are important. And then finally, rural educators, college counselors, and policymakers have some really clear opportunities to improve college persistence and retention. That starts with Upward Bound and sort of an examination of that program, which I think is so important, but it was founded 40 years ago, maybe 50 years ago now, with the Higher Education Act at a completely different time in our nation's history when demographics were different, when the economy was different, when there was different landscape of social inequality. So I think there's some re-examination there. I think college counselors and guidance counselors and teachers really have opportunity to think about how they position higher education at all stages of the K-12 journey. And then of course, we in higher education, whether student affairs, admissions, need to think differently about rural students. In my introduction, I talk about a journalist who referred to rural undergraduates as the new underrepresented minority in higher education. When you look across the institutions I've worked, elite institutions, Ivy League, old, well-resourced private liberal arts colleges, rural students are underrepresented. And it's not because they lack the talent or the drive or the intelligence. It's because there are systemic inequalities that are making them invisible 
in the higher education system in this country. And just before we move on to our last question, just to highlight in your dissertation, it's very clear for every one of your students that their financial aid office failed them. Yes. And I don't say that to call out the, them out, but it is it was maddening the level of poor customer service these students got that contributed to their dropping out. Melissa, that's a central point, and I think a cent- speaks to a central finding. The financial aid offices of the students in the study function much more as collections agencies and much less as advising structures that were keeping their fiduciary responsibility to pay the bills of the university while understanding that it's a mission-driven organization, not a collections agency. That's well put. Uh, Our final question, and we ask all of our uh, folks this that participate on our podcast, is what pieces of advice do you have for others who are currently on their doctoral journey, aside from if you see a pandemic run the other way, which you (laughs) referenced earlier, but any other parting thoughts on tips for our doctoral students? Yeah, I don't know that the advice I have is that profound. But I entered my doctoral program with a much different research idea and agenda than I left. And I realized in the first semester, due to the mentorship of the wonderful faculty at Boston College, that that research area was not going to carry me through four years, let alone a global pandemic. (laughs) And they encouraged me to really search not just my brain for the topic that really engaged me intellectually, but also my heart and what I care about in terms of my values and my lived experience. And that's how I really discovered my passion for rural education and for better understanding rural education. And so to anyone at any stage, I would just encourage you to examine your head and your heart and find a dissertation topic and area that resonates with both. And if you're lucky, it'll align with some of your professional goals. And if it doesn't, then it will be something that you're proud of and that will still be close to your heart many decades from now. Because I I do feel like this piece of work is something that I'm uh, proud of as a person, not just as a scholar or a higher education administrator. Very well put. Well, thank you, Chris, for spending a part of your evening with us. Uh, sounds like the better part of your evening is yet to come with some cake and cocktails. So we that's right. I wish I wish you guys could jump out of the screen, but <laughs> you guys are great. This is such a great project. Thank you so so much. It's so meaningful, wonderful for me to be able to talk about this stuff with someone that's actually read the darn thing. Thank you so much again for sharing your time. Uh, we really do appreciate it. Thank you again to all of our listeners. Please remember to subscribe to hear all future episodes of the Beyond the Defense podcast, where new episodes are released Fridays at 5 p.m. Be sure to follow Beyond the Defense on Facebook and Twitter to receive updates on upcoming episodes and to get more information about sharing your research. See you next week.